Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 201. My name is Terry Frost and this time we're getting a little heavy. We're doing World War II and post-World War II related movies. Very different, one coming from the start of the war, one coming after the end of the war, but both of them important in their own way. The first one is the 1940 Charlie Chaplin comedy, The Great Dictator with Paulette Goddard and the second one is from 1961 and a much more important and a much heavier and a much longer film and that is Judgment at Nuremberg directed by Stanley Kramer and with an enormous cast Spencer Tracy, Richard Widmark, Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Judy Garland, Marlena Dietrich a whole host of people in and Maximilian Schill in a, an Oscar winning role so sit back I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll get this puppy on the road Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation it appears every two weeks and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old probably not going to do genre films because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast but nonetheless that's the rule more than 20 years old you can contact it off for feedback several ways the first one is the new feedback email address feedbackpaleo p-a-l-e-o at gmail.com you can go to the paleo cinema cafe on facebook and leave feedback there and get updates or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through this podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. Okay, how are you all doing? Um, it's, it's going fine here. We've kind of got into the warm weather, but not exactly. There was an enormous dusty thunderstorm that came through the other day and killed four people with something new that I found out, which is called um, thunderstorm asthma. Apparently asthma is um, aggravated and messed up by thunderstorms and six people in Melbourne died because of asthma attacks caused by the dust and the changes in weather. Okay, just pause then to look up um, thunderstorm asthma. And I found out what caused it, which was a little bit lateral, a little bit unusual. Here's what happens with thunderstorm asthma. Excuse me while I rustle a little bit of paper. Thunderstorm asthma gets caused because pollen, um, which most of the time your upper respiratory tract takes care of so your nose your throat they take care of pollen pieces but what happens with thunderstorm asthma is on days of high pollen the pollen gets chucked up into the air high into the atmosphere and ruptures into much smaller pieces which get caught in the lungs of asthmatics in particular and causes incredible asthma reactions so there is still a whole bunch of people in in hospital in melbourne because of thunderstorm asthma because of all of those pollen bits that get into their lungs in fact, they didn't have enough ambulances across the city. There were something like 1,500, 1,600 people affected by this stuff. And it's all caused by climate change. So that's just to get you in the mood for talking about World War II and Hitler and things like that. Something um, less than cheerful to do that. But before we get into um, Adenoid Heinkel and the Nuremberg trials, this is what I've been watching lately um, over the past few weeks. The past week, anyway. Um Rebecca McLaren and I did a Stephen King adaptation for the ABC radio gig last time around, and we decided to do Stephen King's Dead, The Dead Zone, directed by David Cronenberg. Of course, it stars Brooke Adams and Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen. 
And we enjoyed it. I mean, it's not paced like a, a 21st century movie. It's slow and methodical, a little bit episodic, but it really does work well. And Christopher Walken being the scary and creepy looking bugger he is really makes it work. Um, the reason we did it, and this is a bit cheeky of us, I'm fully willing to admit our cheekiness on the radio gig, is that it has an evil US president in it, um, of course, Greg Stilson in the future, which um, Johnny Smith, the uh, clairvoyant played by Christopher Walken, sees, um, is basically going to cause the apocalypse later on. So that puts a plot in play. And so Beck and I decided we were going to do the Dead Zone as a sly way of um, mentioning Trump. In fact, and in fact, uh, at one stage I said something like, "Yeah, well, nothing can trump our review of this movie." And so we went with that. Um, then I found on either Netflix or Stan, one of the two, might have been Stan, uh, a documentary from about ten years ago that I missed for some reason called American Grindhouse, which is about the Grindhouse movie phenomenon. They get the usual suspects on board to talk about it: uh, Joe Dante, a whole bunch of um, people who've written movie books and some actors and, and things like that. And it's not a bad documentary. Uh, I think this is one of the movies that came out just before the game changer in this kind of a genre, which of course was not quite Hollywood. The one about exploitation movies, which started using subtle computer graphics to kind of enhance the story and go bugfuck crazy with it. But American Grindhouse is worth checking out if you get a chance to. It really does do okay. Um, the other thing I watched, which is a kind of early 1950s English film noir with a pretty good cast, is a movie called The Good Die Young, which has Stanley Baker. Lawrence Harvey, um, a bunch of other actors in there. Joan Collins is in there, amongst others. And um, it's about four guys who kind of get together. Uh, Richard Basehart's in it, and also um, John Ireland. So they get two American actors, two British actors in, and it's basically about four guys who get together under the influence of Lawrence Harvey's sleazy character to perform a robbery on a post office van which will get them enough money to live the life they want the way they want to live their lives it does set up the reasons why the guys are going after the money and the characters are a bit more complex than usual but it's a nice little um british crime drama done kind of well and and in some ways it'll remind people of the killing the stanley kubrick movie though it came a couple of years before but it's a very tight little thriller and um, pretty good as well. I, I did enjoy that. I think that um, it's a little self-conscious at times, but if you get a chance to see The Good Die Young, you're not going to be disappointed in it. It's um, an honest crime drama. I've been watching the usual TV stuff, you know, different bits of TV series. I've been watching Penn and Teller's Fool Us because I've got this thing at the moment where I really enjoy watching magicians do things very well. With basic card tricks and things like that, a lot of the time you know um, what's going on, particularly if, like me, you've read a number of books on card magic. But it doesn't stop you from enjoying it. Knowing that somebody's forcing a card or knowing what's happening and um, when they're palming a card and putting it somewhere else and all that kind of stuff does not take away from a TV show like this because it's all in the artistry. It's, you, know, you know how people dance, but it doesn't stop you from watching Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. And this is kind of like that. There are some tricks that are a bit off the wall and a bit different than that and are mind-blowingly good. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a nice uh, series with a bit of fun 
And uh, one of the weird things is I binge-watched four episodes of Penn and Teller's Fool Us. And then I went to make a coffee and I started doing, uh, totally unconsciously, magician flourishes while I was like doing the porter filter and tamping out the porter filter and putting it underneath the burr grinder and grinding the coffee. I was doing it all a bit theatrically because I'd be watching this shit for like two hours. And um, yeah, so it does have an influence on us and it's kind of cool. But um, that's about all I've been watching. Yeah, the usual suspects have been watching Legends of Tomorrow, all of the DC live action TV stuff I'm kind of somewhat addicted to, which is a bit of fun. And um, yeah, it gets my superhero addiction under control a little bit. Some episodes are better than others, some series are better than others, but I still don't mind sitting down and just watching them when I'm not in the mood for something that's not too mentally taxing at the end of a hard work day. And while we're on the subject, I have a week off at the beginning of December. For some reason, uh, we're a bit tight on leave at work at the moment. I've got some to leave accrued, so I'm taking a week off then. Probably going to watch a lot of movies, uh, and I want to also get the um, intro to Paleo Cinema and Martian Driving re-recorded, and also the credits at the end. So that's one of the things I've allocated some time on the first full week of December to do apart from that i'm not doing much there's not too much spare cash around here and uh, it's not the time of year when you particularly want to go away on uh leave i've only got a week and a week's not really enough to kind of go away and, and hang out somewhere else nonetheless i'm looking forward to it um, i'm looking forward to the downtime i've earned it i deserve it and i'm going to take it so anyway um i'm going to take a break and when i get back i'm going to talk about let's do the great dictator first with charlie chaplin and paulette goddard not so far from here there's a very lively atmosphere everybody's going there this year That was Desi Arnaz with C-U-N-C-U-B-A, which is my way of saying um, that Fidel Castro died. Anyway, um, let's get on with something a bit less serious, but more serious at the same time. And that, of course, is the 1940 
Charlie Chaplin movie, The Great Dictator. The Great Dictator is one of those movies that you can easily feel conflicted by because uh, it was filmed in 1940, a year after the war started, contrary to the American opinion that started in 1941. And it kind of suffers because nobody, apart from, of course, the Nazis themselves and a number of German people, knew exactly what was going on in Germany at the time. We, there were news reports, there were um, information, very little of it really, leaked through the media at the time because of world time, wartime restrictions on the media. So Chaplin was making this movie, which he started in 1937. You've got to remember he started this before World War Two came out, where he wanted to take the piss out of Adolf Hitler for a number of reasons, one of which is, of course, a friend of Chaplin's mentioned that Hitler had stolen his style and his persona to a certain extent with the uh, toothbrush moustache and, and the kind of campish mannerisms and all that kind of thing and of course this pissed off Chaplin as well. There is some talk that Chaplin was of Jewish heritage now I've been doing my homework on this and you can't get any solid information his birth was never registered his parents were uh, theatrical people uh, and they didn't particularly keep track on um, their genealogy too much it's a possibility, there were a lot of Jewish um, cabaret and vaudeville performance, well not vaudeville but music hall performers in England uh, before the turn of the century and of course later on as well but uh, one way or the other Chaplin felt strongly and of course with his leftist leanings as well that Hitler was definitely uh, a menace to the world a lot of people knew this but Chaplin was on top of that and it was one of the reasons why when he did Limelight in the 1950s, America wouldn't let him back into America after he made Limelight because he was an English citizen and he was a premature anti-fascist, which is one of those code words that uh, McCarthy and his mates used in order to um, tar perceptive people with the brush of communism. Nonetheless, Chaplin decided to make the movie and with his then-wife, Paulette Goddard, did so. And the supporting cast in this movie is pretty damn good as well. It was filmed mostly on, a little bit on location, but mostly at Chaplin Studios, which were there until the late 1950s. They were actually located at uh, 1416 North La Avenue in Hollywood. And if you go there now, Jim Henson's workshop is there, and there's a statue on a plinth, outside where Chaplin Studios were and where Jim Henson's um, workshop is now, of Kermit the Frog dressed up as the little tramp. In fact, if you go to Google Maps at 1422 North La Brea Avenue, you can see Kermit as the little tramp there, kind of acknowledging the history of both Chaplin Studios and Jim Henson Studios now. So that's kind of cool that there's still being more or less used for the same purpose. But uh, back in the 1930s, when this was made, the movie starts in 1918. Uh, the Army of Tomania, which is um, Chaplin's surrogate for Germany, being a reference, of course, to tomain poisoning, for kind of food poisoning. And um, a Jewish barber is a part of the Army of Tomania. He's working on a large anti-aircraft gun, which doesn't quite work the way the Tomanian army wanted to because they were supposed to be blowing up the Eiffel Tower in Paris 50 miles away and end up blowing up a shithouse, an outdoor shithouse, which is kind of good. Um, then the um, there's a little bit of a gag about the fog of war with the two armies in the trenches fighting against each other. 
which is kind of fun. Then a Tamanian pilot, played by Reginald Owens, whose name is Schultz, is kind of wounded and fatigued. So he convinces the um, barber, who never gets a name, by the way, is the same as the way the little tramp chaplain's kind of iconic character never had a name. So the, the barber never has a name. Yeah, and the pilot convinces the barber to um, help him fly the plane back to Tamanian lines and provide some important documents that the Tamanian army needs. And there's some really nice um, physical comedy and some gags between Reginald Owen and Chaplin, which work really well um, on in the aeroplane. They're in a biplane, an open cockpit biplane. And some shit happens during that, which I won't spoil. It is quite good physical comedy it's well thought out it's well scripted the characters are both very very um good and having chaplin actually speaking helps a lot with this and it is quite a good gag the plane crashes and the barber um has amnesia for 18 years and is kept in a hospital meanwhile um adenoid heinkel of course adolf hitler also played by chaplin has become the new dictator of Tumania after Tumania went through a whole bunch of economic problems not unparalleled by the Weimar Republic in Germany and I'm going to turn my phone down so we have um, Heinkel being very much a, a pastiche and a very camp pastiche of Hitler along with his sidekicks um, Garbage played by Henry Daniel and Herring played by an old colleague of Chaplin's from the silent days, Billy Gilbert. So, you know, Herring and Garbage, of course, are um, pastiches themselves of um, Goebbels and Himmler. So we've got a good cast in here. Um, Also, meanwhile, at the same time, there are some storylines going on in the Jewish ghetto in Tomania where a lady called Hannah played by Paulette Goddard, uh, is a kind of orphan who is being looked after by Mr. Jekyll, played by Morris Moscovich and his wife and their family. And there's a little community in a, in a courtyard area of the Jewish ghetto. And one of the things that Chaplin does with this is gives us a strong sense of the community in the ghetto in a very charming and, and lovely way. It really is... Um, handled very sensitively for instance when the barber does show up again at the ghetto and Hannah and he go on their first date everybody's helping her get dressed and they're getting her a shawl from somebody's house and this and that from other places so they one of the things Chaplin does really well is gives us a sense of community and a sense of um, camaraderie in the ghetto which is singularly lacking, of course, in Heinkel's palace. So the barber comes back to the ghetto and kind of at first he doesn't realise that 18 years have passed until somebody tells him. He's wondering why his locked-up um, barber shop is so dusty and things like that. He's a very good barber too, by the way. He's a, a superb barber. But he soon gets in trouble with this Tomanian uh, storm... That's hard to say. Tomanian stormtroopers, <laughs> who were the bully boys of the ghetto... But he just thinks they're policemen and why they're policemen acting like total assholes. And he stands up to them, which nobody else in the ghetto has done because of you know, history and because of their previous experiences and the parallels, of course, with Kristallnacht. But um, he stands up to them and um, Hannah, being a, a gutsy girl, also stands up to them. 
and he comes very close to being hung on a lamppost by the stormtroopers until his old friend Schultz turns up and he's very high in high-ranking officer in Heichel's administration and he tells the stormtroopers to leave the ghetto alone and this particular area because in the previous war the barber had saved his life and and at the same time Heinkel is trying to invade the neighbouring country of Osterlich and he doesn't have enough money to do it so he's trying to convince Jewish bankers to bankroll him invading this other country and so he decides to ease up on the ghetto while he's trying to negotiate this financing deal for his new war you got to remember this is in you know written in 1937 and filmed in 1940 this is before anybody really knew to the the extent to which the final solution was occurring and would occur in years subsequent to this as well because even uh, in 1940 the utterly monstrous machinery of genocide hadn't geared up yet so the barbers in the ghetto Heinkel is about to invade Osterlich at the same time where his neighbouring fascist country of Bacteria, run by a character played by Jack Oakey, very well called Napoloni, who is obviously um, a mockery of Benito Mussolini. And Jack Oakey plays him really well. He does have a little bit of a tootsie-fruitsy Italian accent, kind of the way Chico Marx did. But um, where Heinkel is kind of neurotic and camp and um you know languid and insecure and all this kind of thing um napoloni is over the top bombastic larger than life and almost falstaffian character uh and the conflict between the two of them and um jack oakey and chaplin playing off against each other as the two characters including a bit of kind of um, psychological one-upmanship to do with the height of chairs and things like that is quite fun it's a very well observed comedy and is very well played by the two actors as well and there's a, a bit at the train station so there are all these little set pieces of Chaplin comedy that go throughout the movie both in the ghetto and also in the palace and, and the environs of Adnoid Heinkel uh, there, there are the famous set pieces as well there's the balloon dance with um, Heinkel and a globe balloon where he's kind of doing a kind of campy ballet with a globe of the world as if he wants to, you know, he wants to own it and love it and take it over. And there's a kind of uh, very well orchestrated dance there. There's a, a speech made by Heinkel, which is a combination of German, Yiddish and Kassenjammer kids, fake German. There's quite a cute little bit where the barber is shaving one of his customers to the tune of Brahms' Hungarian Rhapsody and does it very well. The, the physical comedy in this is breathtakingly good and you know, plays to Chaplin's strengths as well. The barber ends up being taken to a concentration camp along with Schultz and the concentration camps are pretty much on par with an American army barracks of the 1940s which shows that nobody knew what was going on in concentration camps. They knew they were prisons, they knew that Jews and political dissidents and homosexuals and gypsies and all those kind of fringe people in the culture, or who were perceived as fringe people in the culture, were put in them. But um, Chaplin's portrayal of them is, from our viewpoint, a very dissonant kind of image. Uh, Schultz and the Tramp 
Oh, sorry, not the tramp, the barber. I'm getting the two mixed up, I apologise. The barber and Schultz escape. And there are some nice bits when they um, try to escape from being captured in the first place. But they escape, and through um, the fairly obvious device of Heinkel being mistaken for the, the barber and the barber being mistaken for Heinkel, just at the point that Tomania is invading Osterlich, there's an enormous speech that Heinkel has to make. And the barber ends up making the speech. And the fourth wall gets broken down a little bit as Chaplin makes an impassioned speech for peace and tolerance and understanding and humanity, which um, at the time was very unpopular. This movie would not have been made by a Hollywood studio at the time. They were too shy, gun-shy of losing quite substantial cinema markets in Germany, for instance. The first um, studio that broke ranks with that, by the way, was Warner Brothers. And they kind of withdrew from Germany quite promptly once the nature of the conflict and the nature of what was happening to Jewish people, and the Warners, of course, being a Jewish family, um, was happening. But other studios were very lagged about it, so... This was made with $1.5 million of Chaplin's own money. He wrote it, he directed it, he starred in it. He also did the music for it. So he was playing a one-man band pretty much. And just, um, obviously, as they were heading towards the end of production, maybe Chaplin got an inkling of exactly what was going on in Germany and in Europe. And he decided to end the movie, not with a slapstick ending, but with a plea for humanity, which is really um, kind of... It's the sort of thing that a studio wouldn't have tolerated in the 1940s, nor would it tolerate now. Um, having the audience lectured by one of the characters in a movie really wasn't something that would have played well, and, and studios, again, have that kind of eye on the dollar rather than uh, what the moral out morality of what they're doing. But the bit that got me, and this is something I haven't heard mentioned elsewhere, but obviously somebody at some stage has, this movie has been very well essayed over the past 70-odd years, is the preamble to the speech that um, the barber makes when everybody thinks he's Heinkel. And that preamble is delivered by Henry Daniel, who was wonderful at playing charismatic villains. In fact, uh, in The Princess Bride, if you have a look at The Princess Bride, the character Count Rugen, played by Christopher Guest, is Christopher Guest channeling Henry Daniel in any number of movies where Henry Daniel was a villain. I'm going to play the in kind of intro to Heinkel that Henry da uh, Daniel's character Garbage gives in The Great Dictator. Corona veniat directus. Victory shall come to the worthy. Today, democracy, liberty, and equality are words to fool the people. No nation can progress with such ideas. They stand in the way of action. Therefore, we frankly abolish them. In the future, each man will serve the interest of the state with absolute obedience. Let him who refuses beware. The rights of citizenship will be taken away from all Jews and other non-Aryans. They are inferior and therefore enemies of the state. It is the duty of all true Aryans to hate and despise them. Henceforth, this nation is annexed to the Tomanian Empire, 
and the people of this nation will obey the laws bestowed upon us by our great leader, the dictator of Tomania, the conqueror of Austerlich, the future emperor of the world. Now, that's very chilling stuff to see the comedy. It really is. It's um, a warning, in a sense, by Chaplin to uh, the American people. And yes, it's incredibly didactic, but it does uh, set up the dilemma that the barber has. He's got to make a speech now, and he's just heard the preamble by garbage, and he knows what's at stake. And one of the things, the kind of side looks that um, Chaplin gives to the people around him while this bit of speech is going on does give you a, a good picture of the fact that this guy's out of his depth and he's in an incredibly dangerous situation, but he is impelled by his own moral compass to say something. And I'm going to play the rest of it. I'm going to play the bit that Chaplin says at the end because I, it's, I feel it's important and I want to compare and contrast it to the speech that Spencer Tracy gives at the end of Judgment at Nuremberg, where we know what happened during World War II at the time Judgment at Nuremberg was made. And we have a very much better picture of the evil that was the Nazi regime and World War II in general. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent, and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die and the power they took from the people will return to the people and so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men. Machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. 
Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world. A decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! I like that speech. It's a good speech. But in spite of the fact that the people who were there at the time and who made the speech lived through World War I, the Great War, and, and the meat grinder that it was, they lived through the Great Depression. In spite of that, they lived in more innocent times than our own. Nonetheless, there's truth in what they say, and there's truth in what Chaplin says there. And there are phrases and ideas in that speech that resonate strongly to us in 2016. It's been a hard year for a lot of us. It's been a hard year for world politics. And we despair for the possibility that there are harder years ahead. And movies like this remind us of that. Movies like this tell us not to give up. They tell us not to give up hope. They tell us that bad things will pass and that good things are on the horizon. And we need that message. We need that hope. We need that inspiration. And we need the encouragement and the fellowship that comes from a movie like this. It's a great and important movie. Um, Of course, it was made before we knew the horrors. But uh, there's also a list of really interesting other movies that took the piss out of Hitler and took the piss out of dictatorship. The first people to take the piss out of Hitler in modern cinema were also Jewish men, three of them, Moe, Larry and Curly. They actually did two short films for Columbia. You Nazi spy in 1940, in January 1940, and I'll never hile again in July 1941. And yeah, they basically took the piss out of um, Hitler, and they came, the first one came out nine months before The Great Dictator. Then, of course, in 1942, you've got the Jack Benny movie To Be or Not To Be, the Ernst Lubitsch film. I've talked about that. There's the Donald Duck cartoon in 1943, The Furious Face. Hair Meets Hair in 1945 with Bugs Bunny cartoon. Then, of course, we, we kind of have to wait a while. Um, there, there's shit like Hogan's Heroes in 1965, of course, but in 1968, Mel Brooks, who had been at the Battle of the Bulge in World War Two, did the producers where he savagely ripped into the Nazis and camped them up and made them into weirdly gay icons, in fact. Um, and who, yeah, and he had every right to. He fought them. He was a Jewish man who did some very hard things, including mine clearance 
in World War II during the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, Mel Brooks is entitled. Though in 1968, of course, he was accused of bad taste for the producers. I'm not sure why, because I think it's fucking funny. But um, he was, and... There is a place for satire in these things. It doesn't mean that we can't have serious films about the, the, these kind of existential and political threats that um, we suffer. And in a way, it's a kind of satirical line directly from The Three Stooges and Charlie Chaplin through to Saturday Night Love pastiching Trump just before the American election. There's a clean line there saying that one of the ways by which we speak truth to power is comedy. Now, the unfortunate thing is, of course, that things were much worse than Chaplin had, could ever have dreamed. And so watching The Great Dictator in retrospect does is a less kind of... It's hard to say enjoyable, but a less cringeless experience for an audience on this side of 1945 to watch that film but nonetheless he was standing up and and saying these things and kind of doing his defiance in his own way with 1.5 million dollars of his own money which would be about a googleplex bucks these days so it was actually weirdly enough Chaplin's most financially successful movie it was nominated for a number of Oscars and uh, as the years rolled on it was seen more and more as an important film and one of the other things that's kind of interesting it shows that somebody with an enormous talent who when left free of studio interference can create important works of art not everybody did um, Citizen Kane shows that Orson Welles did at least once Chaplin did with this one and a number of his other films but um, yeah it's an interesting thing to posit in that um, how much is a studio there to make sure things go accurately towards a target and how much is it there to kind of hold them back so they don't hit the target but make money um, that's an argument for another time but anyway I'm going to take a break now when I get back I'm going to be talking about a much more serious World War 2 or post-World War 2 movie and that is Judgment at Nuremberg with a very big cast directed by Stanley Kramer and written by Abby Mann based on his Playhouse 90 play Judgment at Nuremberg <laughs> people of the world, let it now be noted that here in our decision, this is what we stand for, justice, truth, and the value of a single human being. Where were we? Where were we when Hitler began shrieking his hate and Reichstag? being dragged out in the middle of the night to Dachau. Where were we when they cried out in the night to us? Were we deaf, dumb, blind? I'm going to go the limit. And not you, not the Pentagon, not God on his throne is going to make you do think it. you're talking to? 
Who the hell do you think you're talking to? My husband was a military man all his life. He was entitled to a soldier's death. He asked for that. That he should be permitted the dignity of a firing squad. You know what happened. He was hanged with the others. It is easy to condemn the German people to speak of the basic flaw in the German character that allowed Hitler to rise to power. But at the same time, comfortably ignore the basic flaw of character that made the Russian sign pacts with him, Winston Churchill praise him, American desolates profit by him. There was nothing like your trying to make it sound. Did you sit on his lap? Stop it! What else do you admit to, Mrs. Fong? What else? Hello? I want that you tell me, was she feeble-minded? My mother! I feel it is my duty to point out to the tribunal that the witness is not in control of his mental processes. I know I am not. Since that day, I've been half I've ever been. So we go from 1940 to 1961 and Stanley Kramer's Judgment at Nuremberg. Um, and fantastic cast in this one. A lot of people took a pay cut to make this movie. In fact, um, Montgomery Cliff worked for basically having his room bar tab covered and in his room covered uh he was quite alcoholic at the time and this is one of the few montgomery cliff movies where he didn't go off the wagon you know he didn't stay on the wagon to make the film he was actually um a functioning alcoholic during the film and uh the movie of course stars spencer tracy as chief judge dan haywood the presiding of the three judges and the and the chief judge of the three judges who were judging the German judges who allowed a lot of the um, atrocities in the 1930s and 1940s to occur. We have Bert Lancaster playing one of those judges, Dr. Ernst Janning. Um, we have Richard Widmarger's Tad Lawson, the prosecutor who's prosecuting these um, four judges who were on trial at the time. Marlene Dietrich plays Mrs. Bertolt, who's um, a German woman whose husband was executed for war crimes. Maximilian Schell plays the defence attorney, Hans Roth. In fact, Maximilian Schell won an Oscar for this role. Uh, along with Abby Mann's screenplay, it was the best screenplay from an adapted work. We have Judy Garland. And then we, we get into a bunch of character actors uh, there who come along as witnesses. And um, Abby Mann and Stanley Kramer said that they were there basically... Well, here was Kramer in his own words... We call these pace-setting performances, Kramer said. The function is not unlike those of the runner who sets the pace in a key race for the man who is out to set a record. Their speaking roles that last up to seven minutes on the screen. They have an explosive quality. That is, a beginning, a middle and an end, and are pertinent to the main theme. Unlike cameos that don't simply drop an actor in front of some scene for the value of his name on the marquee, they utilise their talents in more than one scene and in a developing type of characterization. So there are two actors in particular 
in this film. And that's actually from uh, James Curtis's biography of Spencer Tracy, which is an enormous book. It runs over a thousand pages. So there are two main pace-setting roles in this film. One is Judy Garland, who had been off the screen since The Star Is Born in 1955, as Irene Hoffman, a woman who was part of a very famous trial of a Jewish man who was accused of having a relationship with an Aryan woman, um, Irene Hoffman, when she was 16 and he was 65. And it's one of the cases that's important to the larger case of whether these judges were guilty of war crimes or not. Uh, then we have Montgomery Cliff playing a guy called Rudolf Peterson, who was a communist in the 1930s, who was castrated by the Germans under the pretense of legality. They made the excuse that he was uh, mentally deficient, and that was a justification for doing that. There is some argument on whether, um, in the movie, whether Rudolf Peterson was mentally deficient or not, or whether he was just so severely traumatised by what had been done to him by the Nazis that he couldn't, you know, he still had a lot of psychological problems. Then we've got some interesting actors in minor roles. Um, an actor who's still working, who's the last surviving cast member of this film, shows up as the adjutant who is um, the military liaison for um, the judge Dan Haywood, played by Spencer Tracy. And that's William Shatner in an early role. Uh, we have William Shatner in there with... Not a particularly good toupee, but he's in there as a part of this. We also have, and, and this is the, the unfortunate thing, we have two actors who actually escaped from the Germans playing the part of the German judges, one of whom, of course, is Werner Klemperer, who people knew as Colonel Klink in Kogan's Heroes, but who had a fine career before that as a character actor. He and his father, Otto Klemperer, and his mother... Um, Otto Klemperer was a uh, was a famous conductor uh, at the time. Escaped uh, the Germans in the late 1930s and fled to America. And Werner Klemperer was a German Jew, but in this one he's playing the kind of most odious of the Nazi judges, Emil Hahn, who was not recalcitrant, who never reneged, who had no doubt about his certainty, even at the time of this trial in 1948. And like Conrad Veet and a number of other actors, um, including Peter Laurie, amongst others, I've talked about this before, um, Klemperer was one of those guys who was a victim of the Nazis who ended up making his bucks playing them in movies. And, there's, and you know, it's good that they had actors to portray these kind of evil characters, but there seems to be a special kind of cruelty in having the victims of genocide play the perpetrators of genocide it's a very unusual thing and it's something that really um i, I still have trouble with to this day the other person one is one of the actors who uh played one of the other judges a guy called john wengruft who um was born in vienna and uh in 1933 he emigrated to england to uh, avoid the nazis so again it's another person who fled the Nazis playing a Nazi. But um, the big role, of course, is Ernst Yanning, played by Bert Lancaster. Originally, it was going to be played by Laurence Olivier, but Olivier was stuck doing uh, Beckett on Broadway. Not um, Samuel Beckett, but the play Beckett on Broadway. 
and um, he wasn't able to do the role. And one of the other casting choices that didn't really pan out was the role played by Richard Widmark, Tad Lawson, Colonel Tad Lawson, was going to be played by Marlon Brando. And the thing is that the three main roles in this, the judge, the Nazi judge, and the prosecutor and the defence lawyer, the four good roles in this, all have fantastic speeches in them. They're incredibly good speechifying roles. And all of them uh, are done superbly well during this movie. And the the movie is, is quite long. It runs well, well over two hours. But the reason it runs well over two hours is they're looking at the complexity of the question that arises in the movie. Um, Germany went along with Hitler for this genocide, even though people said they didn't know, they knew in general terms what the philosophy of um, Nazism was. And there's that collective guilt issue. And one of the problems with the positive in the movie too is 1948 is when the Berlin airlift happened. The Russians um, basically barricaded Berlin and the people began to starve. And so the Americans did an enormous airlift of supplies into Berlin from the American-occupied parts of Germany in 1948. And so in the movie, there's a political push to go easy on these judges because they want the German people on side in the fight against communism in post-war Germany. And so there are... There's a conflict, particularly for Lawson, the prosecutor played by Widmark, who's getting pressured by his bosses to get the judge to go easy on these four judges. And originally there were 16. In real life, there were 16 of these judges. And they were only a fairly minor part of the Nuremberg trials. The big guys um, and the big members of the Nazi party and and the big top end brass had already been dealt with in 1948 when the judges were um, put on trial. But in this one, they've kind of narrowed it down to four just to give you the different types of characters they would have had among those judges. And there are a couple of reasons why the trials actually in real life went on in Nuremberg rather than in Berlin or in Munich. The reason, There are a couple of reasons. The first one was that the government infrastructure was in place in Nuremberg where it wasn't in Berlin or Munich or any other big city. So the Hall of Justice was still there. It hadn't been bombed. And there was the wherewithal there to have the kind of infrastructure you need for a four-year legal case against the main people running Nazi Germany. And, and overall, it took four years for these trials to continue. They went from 45 to 49. And the other reason was that the Nazi party had its birth in Nuremberg. The Nuremberg rallies were very important to it. And a strong signal was going to be sent to post-war Germany that they were going to be um, having the trial there as a way of killing off the ideology of Nazism for once and for all. So this movie you know, had a heavy weight of history on it. And it was a movie that had to be done right because of the importance of the theme in in the film. And I think I think they succeeded. And one of the reasons they succeeded and one of the choices made in the film that was controversial at the time and incredibly controversial at the time was that they actually showed footage from the death camps after they were um, liberated by the Allies. 
as a part of the trial. They, they show that, and we as an audience get to see some of that footage, and it's gut-wrenching. Um, this isn't a movie to see lightly. It isn't a, a movie to go into if you're feeling down at all because it's guaranteed to enhance that particular quality of mind. But um, it is... It, it kind of underlines the point of the film. Everything before that was talked about in abstract. It was talked about with witness evidence years after the fact. It was talked about in an illegal environment. But to get to what was at stake in the trials and, and the the core of the movie, it is the death camps and it is what was done under a legal framework set up in Germany and how responsible are judges who enforce this kind of law. And there is some dis, you know, dissent amongst the three judges who um, make up the, the three-judge kind of triumvirate who will make the decision about the guilt or innocence of these judges, these German judges. And some of them believe that, you know, a judge is there to enforce the law, even if the law is bad. And it's the movie kind of sets up something that's very much now a part of the United Nations and a part of the International Court of Justice. And that is the culpability of people in the legal system in places where human rights abuses are occurring. Now, this isn't just a 1940s problem. We're going to have war crime trials in the future for ISIS because ISIS has done something that the Germans didn't really systematize at all. And what ISIS is doing in the Middle East now is they've industrialized rape. They're doing it on an industrial scale. They've got, they're building infrastructure and bureaucracies um, to administer rape. And that's something that um, we as a society in the future are going to have to deal with. Hopefully, if things go well and if um, it isn't the next few years aren't apocalyptic, there will be war crime tribunals in The Hague and courts um, looking into this. And it's going to be, unfortunately, as traumatic and gut-wrenching and we're already getting some of the evidence of this. People who have escaped from um, the sexual imprisonment of ISIS are now talking about it. There's, um, there was an article in The Guardian today about them. And for me, it's very disheartening that this stuff continues in the world. Yeah, it does. And while we're all busy looking at our black mirrors in our hands, this stuff goes on. And... Um, all strength to the people who are out there fighting it. And there are a lot of very strong women in the Middle East who are fighting against ISIS now for that reason. Um, this isn't a, a gendered war the way World War II was where most of the official soldiers working were men. Um, the resistance fighters increasingly in the Middle East these days are women because in a, a very real sense you can be killed and that's the end of it. But for women in with ISIS, there really are um, unending horrors awaiting them if they don't fight against it. And that's um, the unfortunate truth of our time, exactly the way that in judgment Nuremberg had unfortunate and horrible and, and monstrous truths in its time.
Uh, the, the acting in this film is fantastic. Even Judy Garland, who has never been one of my favourite actors, does give um, a, a good role as uh, Frau Hoffman. And um, Pauline Keller, a member of your judgment in Nuremberg, said that the overall impression she got after seeing the film is that the Nazis were nasty to Judy Garland, which is a kind of flippant, uh, a kind of twee kind of way of, of putting it. But I don't believe that at all. I think this movie is important and it raises issues that I find incredibly interesting. I believe in the rule of law. I believe that laws are there t- as a part of civilization. We need them as the glue of civilization as much as we do the goodwill and the good actions of human beings. We need a, a legal infrastructure that supports that. And this movie shows us what happens when the law is used against the people. When politically motivated fears and politically motivated hatreds and politically motivated rhetoric is allowed into the legal process. This movie kind of demonstrates incredibly clearly exactly what happens when that occurs and the threat of it, the threat to civilization, that that kind of politicization of the judiciary can all too often lead to. Now, this movie is a hard ask for everybody involved, though um, Spencer Tracy did play pranks on people at various times during the movie. He, he was known to be a bit of a prankster, and he, he did that. Um, did pranks. Maximilian Schell, by the way, I, I haven't talked about him much. Maximilian Schell is really good as the defence attorney, who really, you know, it's fairly clear that he was brought up in Nazi Germany. And he's looking for a way to rescue his people from the repercussions of the 1930s and the 1940s. And ends up demonstrating exactly what was wrong with Germany in the 1930s and 1940s in the way that he interrogates one of the witnesses. Now, Shell really went method on this one. He was in the original Playhouse 90 television production of judgment at Nuremberg in the late 1950s, playing exactly the same role, Hans Rolf. But he went totally method in doing the movie. He read the 40 volumes of the transcripts of the Nuremberg trials to prepare himself for the role, which is way over the top. But he came into the first read-through well-prepared and really kind of on the ball there. Now, Lancaster came... There's a lot in the Spencer Tracy book about the read-through, the first read-through on this. Shatner was there. Spencer Tracy was there and and did a very good read-through with them. Um, Lancaster was there and was very polite and scholarly and gentlemanly there. Widmark came in and he had the script nailed down. He didn't read the script once. He had it memorised. And um, Marlena Dietrich came in later as well. I don't think Judy Garland was there in the initial read-through either. But it was one of those read-throughs where everybody knew right from the start. And Tracy said this to a couple of other people, including Lancaster. He said that Shell was going to get the Oscar for his role in this film. Once they started filming, he knew who where the, where the magic was. And it was in um, Maximilian Shell's role. Now... Tracy had played a very similar role two years before in Inherit the Wind, where he played um, the um, defence attorney in an equivalent of the Leopold and Loeb case. I think I've talked about it in a previous um, podcast where he was playing the Clarence Darrow character and got some very good speechifying. But uh, that was him playing a lawyer. 
in this one he's playing a judge and a judge with very heavy decisions. Part of the movie is um, Haywood, the judge, understanding what Germany is and what Germany was. And he, he socialises, he, he hangs out with various people, including Marlena Dietrich's character. He sits down and talks with her over coffee in her tiny apartment where he's living in her grand house that she had before the war and her family had had for generations, which had been co-opted by the um, occupying forces of the Allies and tries to come to an understanding of who they are. And there's also a really good scene where they're walking past... Um, a, Hofbra House, and Lily Marlene is playing, which is Marlene Dietrich's iconic tune. And she gives a really interesting and sad explanation of the differences between the English version of Lily Marlene and the German version of it, which I'm not going to spoil. I'm going to leave them for you to find in the movie because it's important. Now, this movie was a very difficult one for Marlene Dietrich to do as well because she was totally on the other side. She wasn't a good German. She wasn't the sort of person defending how Germany was during World War Two and before. She had fought against Nazism from the 1930s. She was one of the people who worked her guts out in USO tours and things like that in during the war to keep morale up and to keep the soldiers near the front lines entertained. She really pay, paid her dues as far as this was concerned and to pay somebody who didn't do that and somebody who was justifying the atrocities committed by her husband and justifying the German nation um, when they've been called out on this atrocious, monstrous and, and quite horrible um, events really um, was difficult for her. She she really found it traumatic to play the opposite kind of person to who she was and particularly in an issue as important as this. It, uh, it did have a profound effect on her. We're going to finish up talking about Judgment Nuremberg with a chunk of Spencer Tracy's speech at the end of it. Because like the Chaplin's speech at the end of The Great Dictator, this speech speaks to me and to our modern times in a chilling way. And I like it. I like the kind of way that Tracy delivers it, the kind of... Uh, Tracy always had a way with a speech and even though he had that kind of Irish mug and his face was ravaged by illness and alcoholism there's something resonant in Spencer Tracy as an actor and as Spencer Tracy's voice that really um, speaks to me in, a, in an important way which isn't to take away from the other actors to shell to Lancaster who doesn't say anything in the courtroom for the first two hours of this film until he does make a statement his character Yarning makes a statement um, but or in fact uh, to Richard Widmark who is very very good as the prosecutor who was also one of the people who liberated the death camps and his anger and his pain shows through brilliantly incredibly underrated actor Richard Widmark but the core of it comes down to this last speech, which was done apparently in one take, and they used the audio from the one take when they were cross-cutting and, and doing things from other angles. Uh, th this beautiful speech by Spencer Tracy about the nature of law and society and the hearts of human beings. I'll leave you with that. This trial has shown that under a national crisis... 
ordinary, even able and extraordinary men can delude themselves into the commission of crimes so vast and heinous that they beggar the imagination. No one who has sat through the trial can ever forget them. Men sterilized because of political belief, a mockery made of friendship and faith, the murder of children. How easily it can happen. There are those in our own country, too, who today speak of the protection of country, of survival. A decision must be made in the life of every nation at the very moment when the grasp of the enemy is at its throat. Then it seems that the only way to survive is to use the means of the enemy, to rest survival upon what is expedient, to look the other way. Well, the, the answer to that is survival as what? A country isn't a rock. It's not an extension of oneself. It's what it stands for. It's what it stands for when standing for something is the most difficult. Before the people of the world, let it now be noted that here in our decision, this is what we stand for. Justice. Truth. And the value of a single human being. All of the best speeches in movies speak to human beings and speak to the nature of the best angels and the worst angels in human life. And that's one of them. I mean, there's the, also the speech that Anton Warbrook gives at the end of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. There are a number of them. They all seem to centre around World War Two and the nature of evil and the nature of the best angels of human beings. It's um, it's part of the wonder of movies. There's a magic in movies when they speak to our hearts, when they speak to the things we know should be true, they speak to our ideals, they speak to the best angels of human nature. And this is one of the great movies. I was actually talking to a um, good friend of the podcast, Davey Mack, on Facebook about this. And um, I'll actually read you some of what Dave said on this because I, I think it is important. And he's got um, an American, and I think he's from Texas too. Tell me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I think you're from Texas. And about his um, knowledge and experience of, of this movie, he's an incredibly passionate advocate for judgment at Nuremberg. There's a whole bunch of stuff Dave says in here. He says, Man shall had a good head of hair. His performance in this is just excellent. Watching the exchange with Clift on the stand. Old Herr Rolf is just a good defence lawyer. His line of questioning is just so awful, but he's doing his gig and honestly doesn't seem to be happy about it. Hard to feel sympathy for him given what he's doing, but you do. He's doing his job and well. Tracy's dejected overruling of Widmark's objection is telling. God, that scene is so sad. Cliff just leaves everyone on the field. Leaves everything on the field. What a brave, incredible performance. And, um... Dave's also talking about a law class. He said, in that law class where Werner Klemper shows up, somebody said, does anybody know who that, that is? And he, um, Dave yelled out, Hogan! And we both uh, pissed ourselves laughing and yelling in unison every time they cut to him. God, that class must have been a nightmare for the 20-year-olds in there. Um, and I, I talked about how Klemper was a good character actor, and Dave said, yeah, he's awesome. That was just a funny thing. There's this dark horror, he's in, horror movie he's in called Dark Intruder, I think. 
that it had been years, but it's kind of a Lovecraft thing, if I remember right. And I tell him that Dark Intruder should be on YouTube. Um, and Dave then says about Judgment in Nuremberg, it's such an insanely nuanced film. At no time does it play safe as just a condemnation. Tracy and Dietrich's relationship with Mark's drunken rant, Russia invading Czechoslovakia during the trial. I don't know, it's a period, it's just so important. It's never been mentioned in a top five or top ten favourite movies list, but I'm really not sure why. It kind of stands alone. There's no other film like it. And then we talk about, um, you know, I wanted to do it because of the rule of law and what the rule of law looked like. And they said, well, since the um, silver and gold dorks are apparently never going to do this, it would be interesting. Uh, 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 he asked me if I'd be interested in doing Seven Days in May and advising consent another couple of political movies. And unfortunately, I had to tell him that I did it in very early days of paleo cinema. But thanks for that, Dave. Just getting your viewpoint on it is is helped me through this podcast. Um, I'm going to get you on board and we're going to talk about, we're going to pick some movies that um, I haven't done before. And I think uh, and I think you'd be up for this because you've expressed the willingness to do it that you and I should talk on a podcast about some films. Um, we'll kind of get together and we'll work out what they're going to be. But I definitely want your voice as a part of Paleo Cinema, mate. So uh, just to wrap things up, yeah, it's been a bit of a bummer. There's been two movies about some of the worst events of the 20th century. and um, But I, I think they're important. I think it's important to remember how those events started and how... And reluctantly, I, I say this, there's a possibility we're again on that path. But the more you shout it out, the more you, you say it, the more voices hear you and the more you... We're in a post-evidence world, which is a difficult thing for me because I'm a big evidence-based guy. If I am tell you a movie is good, I'm going to give you the reasons why. I'm not just going to make up shit about why it's good that aren't true and aren't, can't be verified. I'm very much about that. And in a sense, for me, as a structure of the universe, it's the rule of law, and the law is you have to provide evidence if you say something. We're coming up against people at the moment in the world for whom that's no longer true. They will say anything and do pretty much anything to win a point and to win an argument and to win converts. And this is something fairly new in the world. This is something that's been engendered by social media and by the internet and by our increased and ubiquitous interconnectivity. But we will f work this through. We will find ways to defeat the people who don't believe that truth is truth and who don't, and who will, go along and say it doesn't matter because it does the truth matters facts matter accuracy matters the best angels of our nature need to prevail and greed and hatred and fear and loathing and self-loathing are something we're going to have to deal with our, our biggest threats and our biggest opportunities in the 21st century, lie in psychology. The damaged and the ill and the outliers who have the loudest voices and the deepest pockets can't prevail. We can't let them. 
But anyway, I'm going to leave you on a slightly nighter note after that little rant, and I had to do that. I had to get out of my system. I had to get the pus out of that wound. I'm going to leave you with a little bit talking about um, World War II and Charlie Chaplin from a much more recent film. Anyway, as usual, there are going to be the credits at the end of this film. Thanks to the two carries who aren't yet on the credits, and thank you all for listening, and thank to the Patreon subscribers. But I'll just leave you with this little clip just to leave things on a slightly lighter note. Welcome to the time machine. We are going to take you back first to the year 1939, when Charlie Chaplin and his evil Nazi regime enslaved Europe and tried to take over the world. But then an even greater force emerged, the Un, and the Un, Un-Nazi the world forever. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. 